Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Let's stand this morning for the reading of the Word. Reading this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is page 991 on your pew Bibles. First Timothy chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Father, thank you this morning for your word. It's a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. It is our hope. It is where we meet and experience you in Holy Scripture. Lord, we thank you for it. I pray your anointing to be here this morning, to anoint our hearts to receive, our ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are beginning this morning uh, on another series. So we just finished the Gospel of John a couple weeks ago and moving right into another series on the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are the books of First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus, three books in the New Testament. Uh, they are called this because the Apostle Paul is writing uh, to two men and dealing with a lot of pastoral issues. Yes, there is a lot of theology here, but these books are more pastoral, say, than much of the book of Romans or the book of Galatians. We should not think of these books, however, as simply Paul writing to these men. These letters were written as well to the churches. It is likely that the church uh, that was there, uh, in this case Timothy, who is pastoring in Ephesus, uh, the, the letter gets read to the church. The church is familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul. So this morning as we begin a new series, 
You may ask the question, why do we preach through a book of the Bible? Why would we do that? Well, number one, and there are several reasons, but number one is it keeps me as the preacher tethered to the text. I don't have to come up with things to say. I don't have to come up with ideas because if I do, then it ceases to become preaching. Preaching is not my ideas. You don't come here every Sunday morning to hear what I think about something. You come to hear the Word of God expounded upon. It keeps us tethered to the text. The text is relevant to us. It forces me into lanes to talk about things that I may not otherwise talk about. It's very easy for a preacher, and I've been there, it's very easy for a preacher to find their subject that they like to say and the thing that they always want to talk about. And you just you hear the same thing over and over and over and there, there's really there's no width there's no any there's nothing there other than that main idea that the preacher always wants to talk about and I'm not I'm not talking about the gospel everything goes back to the gospel I'm saying that this forces me into avenues that I may not normally talk about it keeps a single verse of scripture from being taken out of context this is called proof texting. We take one verse out of the Bible. It's bumper sticker ethics. You take one verse out of the Bible and you take it completely out of context. I've heard my share of that kind of preaching where you're sitting there going, that's not what that verse means. It's what it sounds like it means because you didn't read anything before or after it. But I don't get to say what the verse means. I have to tell you what the verse means and we have to see it together in the context of Scripture. God speaks to His people three ways. He does talk to us through His Spirit. The Holy Spirit deals with our hearts and speaks to us. He speaks to us through His Word, through Scripture, and He speaks to us through a preacher. Preaching is the God-ordained way that combines all three of these things. The preacher is preaching the Scripture. The Holy Spirit is illuminating our hearts. It is a beautiful thing when done properly. The Bible is God-breathed. It is the Spirit of God in writing. It is alive. And so I preach through books because I want all of us to see God's glory through God's Word. We are transformed, according to 2 Corinthians 3, by being exposed to God's glory. And this happens by being exposed to His Spirit and to His Word. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ. I'm not yet like Jesus. We say we're Christians, like we're Christ-like. Well, am I really Christ-like? Well, no, not in every way. There's a lot of areas that if I hold my life up to the mirror of His Word and look at it and see the reflections coming back, I don't like a lot of times what I see. And so we, we hear the Word of God, and we're exposed to His Spirit, and we're transformed into His image. So that when we walk out of here every week, that we're a little more like Jesus. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. <clears throat> So I want to lay this morning a groundwork for this entire series. As I said, the pastoral epistles, um, or pastoral letters, an epistle is a letter, refers to these three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And Paul is the author of all three of these books. He's writing them to Timothy, 
to Titus. He's not, these aren't letters by these men. They're letters by Paul to these men. Paul writes these sometime after his first imprisonment, and he writes these towards the end of his life. So these are some of the last writings that we hear from the Apostle Paul sometime in the mid-60s. The grouping together of these three letters is a fairly recent invention over the past 300 years. So I say that because it's not like the Bible calls these the pastoral epistles. This is a post-biblical designation that we look at and we group them together and say they're pastoral in nature. We call them the pastoral epistles because Paul is writing to a church leader. He's addressing these men, um, pastors, rather than addressing the entire church like he would do in Romans or Ephesians. And because of this, these letters in preaching, I feel, have been somewhat neglected in terms of sermons preached. We hear volumes of sermons on the writing of the Apostle Paul, but most of these sermons comes from letters that Paul wrote to the church. So the letters that Paul writes to Romans, um, to the church in Colossus, to the church in the region of Galatia, um, but we don't always hear that many sermons from the pastoral epistles. But these letters do have great relevance to us as a church. As Paul is writing to the pastors about matters that are related to the congregation. So he writes about doctrinal matters, about church leadership, about right living. And it is interesting that when you read through these letters, the issues and the culture and the struggles in that society that the early church faced very much mirror our own 21st century experience. People haven't changed that much in 2,000 years. You read these letters and they, they resonate with us. We say, yes, we're dealing with the same things. And one of the fundamental things we need to know about understanding our Bibles is that the words were not written to us. It's just basic Bible understanding. The Bible was not written to us, but the Spirit of God is speaking to us through these words. So God is speaking to us about our lives, about our finances, about our relationships, about our habits, all through a letter that was written 2,000 years ago. And in order to understand what God is saying to us, we also need to understand what God was saying to the recipients of the letter. One of the most important questions you can ask, this is just good for the rest of your life when you're reading the Bible. It'll save you a lot of misunderstanding. One of the most important questions when you're reading the Bible is, how did the original readers and hearers understand the words that were written to them? How would they have interpreted it? Because it's just, it wasn't written to us. It was written for us. Paul says, for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. But you have to understand it the way they would have understood it. This is very helpful when reading the book of Revelation. How would the early church, those churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches that it is addressed to, how would they have interpreted it? Because that would be the proper way to understand the book. Part of being in a spirit-filled, biblically conservative, evangelical church is the belief that we can know the intent of the biblical author and we can know what the Spirit is saying to the church today. We can know truth. The Spirit of God is speaking to us through this book of 1 Timothy. So let's begin with the idea 
that 2,000 years ago, even though people thought the same, dealt with the same issues and struggles, life itself looked very, very different than it does today. It's very difficult for us to relate what people were like 2,000 years ago. Even just a few hundred years ago, a couple hundred years ago, uh, people's health overall, it wasn't like today. I mean, people generally, a lot of times, just didn't feel good. I mean, they, they battled so many ailments. I mean, you read some of the great writers, the great preachers, the great pastors in church history, that we have volumes and volumes of their writings, and then read about what they dealt with their entire life uh, with their health, because it's just the way that people lived. But just as everyday life was different, so was church life. So there was no, they, they didn't do church like this. There was no uh, platform. Most corporate worship was done in people's houses. In the first century, nearly all corporate worship was done in people's homes. And even the houses look different. The houses that I'd say, you know, people live in today, the average house in our area, they, they couldn't have wrapped their head around having that much space. You know, we, we picture them worshiping in their home and we, we picture their, you know, 15 by 20 living room. No, that's, it's not what it was like. There was no band, there was no music, there was no drums, there was no microphone, there's no um, Sunday schools, there's no multi-million dollar budgets, there's no PowerPoints, there's no preaching from an iPad, um, there's no video camera set up in their first century church so their neighbors down the street can see it. Uh, there was no texting in church, there was no texting to give your offering. It was a very different world. Now, I am of a little different persuasion than many of my peers in the belief that the early church's model, the way they did church, was no more biblical than the way that we do our church. It's been a big movement the last few years. I, I think I saw it more 20 years ago, or maybe I was just more connected to it 20 years ago, but I remember a big movement, in the, especially in the 90s, of house church. We have to go back to the apostolic model, meaning, you know, that word apostolic gets thrown out around a lot. I'm like, can you please define what that means? Um, what they meant was first century. We need to go back to that first century model, and they had church in their homes, and that's how we're going to reach the world. We're going to do it in our homes. And, and that's fine. I know churches that do that, and I'm not against that. Um, but I don't think that model was any more biblical. My assertion is that the people in the first century were living out their life and their worship in the context of their culture, just like we are. They were doing it the way that they knew how to do it. Because the New Testament is largely silent on what the ideal church model should look like. I mean, there is very little, I mean, especially since the Old Testament is so particular about how to have church. I mean, the Old Testament spins chapter after chapter after chapter. It tells you the dimensions, what color the curtain should be. I mean, it is in painstaking detail how to worship God. And then we get to the New Testament. We don't really have a whole lot of, I mean, it's almost non-existent in the New Testament. And I contend that this silence is not a weakness, but rather a tremendous strength that empowers the gospel to not only be countercultural, but to be transcultural, relevant and adaptable to the context of every generation and people group in the world. So there are people today that will worship in mud huts 
around the world. There are people today who will worship God under a tree, in a field, in a park, in a school, in a rec center, in a dedicated building, in a house, on a boat. I guarantee you somewhere in this world this morning there's a cruise ship where people are gathered together to worship. And the New Testament is fine with that because the gospel message is intentionally transcultural. It works across every time and people group. There were other things in the church that were the same as today. The biggest thing that was the same in the early church was God. God was the same. He hasn't grown older. God is not 2,000 years. The, the eternal God is not 2,000 years older than He was then. He is not aged. He can't age. He is eternal. The moving and the working of the Holy Spirit is the same. Human nature is the same. People are people wherever you go. I think by the time you've hit 40, you've met every person that there is on the planet. I mean, you, you go, you start a new job, you go to a new school, and you meet a new set of people, and you go, I've met every one of these people in my life. They have different names and faces, but I've met, I've met all these people before because human nature is the same. Now, think of all the people you know today. Get in a time travel machine, go to any era, any era in history, and you'll meet all the same people you know today. They'll have different names and faces, but they'll be the same people. You know a type A blunt person? Roll back 2,000 years ago. Meet the Apostle Peter. He's going to remind you of somebody that you know. And I lay this groundwork so that we have a better idea of who Paul is writing to. People just like us, with a God that has not changed, but in a culture that is very different than the world that we know today. So the Apostle Paul first meets Timothy in what is now known, or what is now today, modern-day Turkey. It's where they meet. <clears throat> and Timothy has a good reputation among the churches in that area. The Apostle Paul makes Timothy part of his ministry team, and then he sends him back to help the churches that are in Corinth, Thessalonica, and Philippi. But it was in Ephesus where Timothy settles and leads a network of local churches in that area we think he did that for about 30 years. So the crux of Timothy's ministry is to be a pastor of a network of churches in Ephesus for over 30 years. And we gather from the book of Hebrews that Timothy went to prison at least once for preaching the gospel and that this, this message, this, this troublemaking, blasphemous, rebellious, and in their minds dead Jew named Jesus... Um, Timothy's preaching that message, and so he must go to prison. But that Jesus was in reality the Son of God who came to establish God's kingdom on the earth. That's how you were viewed if you were a Christian in the first century. Someone who preached this message, who believed this message, who spread the message, who insisted other people hear the message about this Jew named Jesus who died. He's in a tomb somewhere. Well, not really. They stole his body, but somewhere he's buried. We don't know where his body ended up at, but we thought we crushed this rebellion, but now there's all these people, and we have to continue to crush them. That's what it meant to be a Christian in the first century. You were part of a cult. 
that worshipped a dead man. Think about this. That's how you were viewed. You and I are not viewed like that in 21st century America. People may disagree with Christianity, but it was so recent, so raw in their time that the way they viewed these people is that you guys are worshipping a, a dead man. He was executed, capital punishment, by the government for a crime that was legitimately punishable by death, for blaspheming, claiming to be the Son of God. We today talk about the historic Jesus in the first century. He was, there, there was no such thing as the historic Jesus in the first century. He was a recent figure that had been in the news. This was all very recent. You could meet somebody who met Jesus. He's not a historical figure. He's, he's contemporary right now. And most of the world thinks he's dead. And they think all these people, because Christianity is brand new, they don't have the, the benefit of 2,000 years of church history. This is a new thing. It's weird. It's strange to be a, this believer, this follower of this man named Jesus. Imagine living your life like that every day as a believer. That's what it meant to be a Christian. So for Timothy to receive this letter that we have in our Bibles must have been an incredible blessing. Can you imagine the first time Timothy receives this letter, unrolls the scroll, reads it. Think of the admonition, the strength that comes from this. He's living in a very pagan, idolatrous city of Ephesus. And he gets this letter from his mentor in the gospel. How precious that must have been. So Paul writes to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, now notice this word, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is striking about this is that Paul does not show a lot of affection in his writings. Paul is not a warm and fuzzy guy. In the, at least in his writings, he's not. But he becomes personal here. My true child in the faith. Being part of God's kingdom will create beautiful, godly, holy relationships with other people that will enrich your life. We'll talk about fellowship, biblical fellowship. Fellowship is not having, just having coffee with your brother or your sister. That is the setting that fellowship may be done in, but it's not the fellowship itself. Fellowship is a spiritual practice. It is the place where spiritual formation occurs. Unbelievers can gather together over a meal, and it may be a type of what you call fellowship, but biblical fellowship is something that occurs between believers. It's a beautiful thing because while it's human interaction, it's the Spirit of God working within that interaction and doing miraculous spiritual transformation. Everybody, everybody needs to fellowship with three people in their lives. We all need a Paul, who is a mentor, a parent in the gospel. We all need a Barnabas, that is a peer, is your equal, your friend. And we all need a Timothy, someone that we can take, disciple up, train, put ourselves in. Say, let me show you the way, the path. 
Verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul charges Timothy to stay at Ephesus, not just to preach right doctrine, but to stop other people from preaching false doctrine. <clears throat> it matters what you believe because belief produces behavior. Early in the history of the church, <clears throat> and this is somewhat encouraging to me because there's a lot of bad ideas in Christianity today, but what's encouraging is that early in the history of the church, there were a lot of bad ideas about Jesus, and the church survives and the church flourishes regardless of this, but it's because we have to protect people against these ideas. We have to stand against bad Bible ideas. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, <clears throat> question, aside from the question of the resurrection, was the divinity of Christ. Was He really God? There's all kinds of ideas that, that arise, that float, up and down throughout church history about the nature of Jesus. <clears throat> a horrendous idea about the nature of Jesus was so strong in the fourth century that <clears throat> the Roman emperor gathers together the church leaders in the world and calls them to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and says, let's figure this out. And fortunately, the, the heresy was crushed at that council, and they, they reaffirmed who Jesus is, and the, the divinity of Christ was codified there in that council, because up until that point, there was some really bad ideas. There's ideas ranging everything from he's semi-divine to uh, he was born human, and at his baptism, divinity was granted upon him. And there are just all kinds of ideas that, you know, Jesus is, you know, this, even as God, he's this created being. And I mean, there's just so many bad ideas that are going on that the church had to correct. But it doesn't start in the fourth century. It's going on in the time of the Apostle Paul. Timothy had to deal with false doctrine that the resurrection of the dead and the return of Christ had already happened. There had been a, a teaching that Christ had already returned. Yes, Jesus did establish His kingdom on the earth with His first appearing, but there is another appearing of Christ that is yet to come. We call it the second coming of Christ. It has not happened yet. It is a future event. Jesus will return to this world. The second coming of Christ is our hope. And Paul doesn't use meaningless throwaway phrases. He opens verse 1 by saying, Jesus Christ is our hope. I mean, right at the outset of his letter, Timothy, I know you're in a hard place. Jesus Christ is our hope. The church in Ephesus was also living in the last days, defined biblically as the period of time between the first appearing and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament is filled with language about the hope we have as the people of God. Why? Because Jesus is coming back again. Jesus is going to return to earth a second time, and that is our hope. Paul said elsewhere, comfort one another with these words. The return of Christ is not supposed to scare believers. 
It's not, it, it's, not a, it's not a fear tactic from a pulpit to scare people. It is our hope that Jesus is going to return. Timothy is dealing with false doctrines that contradict all of that, and those doctrines would have left the church in Ephesus with no hope. I mean, if Jesus has already came back and it's still like this, it's kind of discouraging. So Timothy has to go through and say, no, we have a future hope. It's not always going to be like this. Jesus is going to come back and consummate the world. There's going to be a restoration of the way it was at creation. Beware any doctrine that comes from the Bible, supposedly, that does not offer hope. Because hope is the fundamental reality of Scripture. And if there are ideas that are supposedly arising from Scripture that don't give us hope, I have to question the validity of that idea. The church has always had to guard herself against heresy. What is heresy? Philip Towner gave an excellent definition of heresy. He said, heresy is to the church what treason is to the state. Think about treason. That's what heresy is to the church. We should guard against the church. We should guard heresy from the church just like the state guards treason. There are a lot of things we can disagree on and still be in unity. There are even certain doctrinal ideas that we can disagree on and still be in unity. That's true. Not everything is primary. Not every hill is worth dying on. But some are. And anything that subtracts from the deity of Jesus Christ is heretical. And anything that says there is any other way other than the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross to be saved must be deemed heretical. It's one thing for the systems that operate in our world to believe in these things, but it's another when these ideas creep into the church. There will always be bad ideas trying to creep into the church. Paul is charging Timothy, protect the church from false doctrine. It is the aim of the enemy. It is the aim of Satan to deceive the people of God. Revelations 12, Satan does two things. Number one, he accuses the saints before God. The Bible says he does it day and night. He is the accuser of the brethren. Number two, Revelation 12, he deceives the world. I pray that God, it's been a regular prayer of mine, I think it's a good prayer for everybody to pray that God would grant us a sober mind, a sweet spirit, and a sincere heart. Sober mind, not sober doesn't just doesn't mean somber, doesn't mean that you walk around like Eeyore all the time. It means that you're not drunk. You're not drunk on the pleasures of this world. You're not drunk on the lies of this world. Your mind is sober. It's not intoxicated with the poison that is inserted that we hear every day. A sweet spirit and a sincere heart. Because I am not any of those things without God. Without His Spirit, His Word, His glory, and His grace, we are none of those things. By default, so how does this relate to deception? 
because of our minds. By default, I have a mind that can be easily intoxicated by this world. I have a spirit that can easily be turned hard. I have a heart that is full of deceitfulness and and wickedness. And its default position, according to the Bible, is to be desperately wicked. That's my default position. So I say, God, transform my mind, my spirit, my heart into what you want it to be. Now Paul's aim, his goal in charging Timothy to protect truth and fight against false doctrine is not an all intellectual pursuit. It speaks to the very heart of what it means to be a believer. It's not about just knowing right doctrine. I have head knowledge. It's about what I know moving into every part of my life and transforming everything inside of me. Now, Paul uses a lot of language about aiming, hitting the target, hitting the mark. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's talking about pressing towards a target. There's a goal. I heard a guy say the other day, I tried to walk into Target, but I missed. Um, That's the idea. I mean, Target's got the big bullseye on the side. That's what Paul's talking about. Going into this, uh, I'm faced toward that target, that goal. Paul uses that language all the time. Now, hear what he says. I said that to frame 5 through 7. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 6. Certain people, by swerving from these, just put a pin in that word swerving, we're going to come back to that, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, swerve. Certain people are swerving away from these things. Now, here's where we need to understand. We've got to understand what Paul means by swerving, because when we read swerve, we're conditioned to think about that word in one way. Usually driving a car, there's something in the road, you swerve to miss it. I've hit five deer in my life, the first one in my truck when I was 17, um, and then the last one right 10 years ago, right before I moved here. Um, A lot of people that I know, because if you lived in southern Illinois, good chance that you hit a deer. Lots of people hit deers. My mother nearly totaled a car hitting a deer. I destroyed the front end um, of a a car hitting a deer. Um, It's just what people did. So when you train drivers, when you're 16 getting your license, everybody learns and you tell your kids and you remind people your whole life, don't swerve to hit a deer. If you see a deer, do not swerve. Now, why would you tell somebody that? Because there were times I saw a deer and I may kind of veer out of the way, but what they mean was, what they meant was, If a deer jumps out in front of you, do not jerk the wheel of the car. Because that's how people died 
More people were hurt and died that way than actually hitting the deer. Because if you hit the deer, I heard a couple instances of the deer coming into the, to the car, um, but most of the time, if you hit the deer, it's going to scare you, it's going to destroy your car, but you'll be okay. Um, you, you're, you're probably not going to die from that. But if you swerve, you're probably going to flip or roll your car or do uh, who knows what. Swerve in this context doesn't mean that at all. What it means is it means to miss the mark. That's the definition. He says swerved. Some people have missed the mark, missed what's being aiming, aimed for. Now we're talking about it would be like aiming towards a target but being way off and you take the shot and you, you swerved. That's what it means. You missed the target. Paul is telling us that when, when people who teach false doctrine, what happens is they miss the target of having love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So if that happens, if people miss the target, it begs the question, what were they really aiming for? Are you really that bad of a shot or were you actually aiming for something entirely different? Which leads to the question, what are false teachers today aiming for? I think there's two answers to that. I think there are some people who are steeped in false doctrine, who are sincere, they're just not biblical. And there are other false teachers, I think, know entirely what they do. I would lump many of the prosperity gospel preachers in with this. They know exactly what they're doing to preach a false gospel. Send me your seed money and you'll become blessed and you'll become rich. I think they know exactly what they're doing. Beware of any teacher that is exalting themselves over God. Be cautious about any preacher who makes the sermon about him or herself. It's a huge red flag. If it's all about me and, and who I am and my stories and you, you know more about me when you walk away than you do about God. That's a problem. Be leery of any preacher who is using the opportunity to stand before people as a platform for a message that is anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preachers who do this are taking the name of the Lord in vain. This is what it means to violate that commandment. People who take God's name. It's not just uttering certain things from your lips. It's about doing things under the banner of God that are not God-ordained. All gospel-centered, truth-laden preaching will have a flavor of humility. It will come from a man whose life screams, I must decrease, but he must increase. Beware of any teacher that is motivated by love for money, always equating God's blessing with more stuff. God might bless you with more stuff, or He may not. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If He gives to me or if He takes away, my posture is the same. I exalt and magnify and make much of Jesus. Your bank account is not an indicator of God's favor in your life. Your investment portfolio, portfolio is not a dashboard for God's blessings. This is why as gospel-loving preachers, we are tethered to the text of this book. I must be able to constantly point back to this book. I have no authority outside of this book. 
I've got one finger pointing to him. I have the other finger pointing into the text, pushing your nose into the text. You want to encounter with Jesus? Get in the book. That's how you encounter Jesus. Get in the book. Put your nose in the book. Pray the Holy Spirit would illuminate in your heart the words that they would come to life. That's how you have an encounter with Jesus. My charge to this congregation is to love truth and to want more truth in your life. The last section. I'm going to, for time's sake, I'm just going to point, because we've read the text earlier, I'm going to point us to verse 10, that the last phrase of verse 10, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? That word sound means to be correct, to be straight, or to be healthy. We would say it means to be orthodox. If you've ever taken your kid to an orthodontist, you know what ortho means. They take teeth that are crooked and they make them straight. It's an orthodontist. Orthopedic. That word's all through the medical profession. It means to make healthy, to make straight. It is the word that is used there when Paul says sound doctrine. It's ortho doctrine where we get orthodox. Orthodox is right doctrine, sound doctrine, healthy beliefs about God. I said it a couple weeks ago. There are some areas in life that we may not always want to be orthodox in. I said, if I ever found out that my body was ate up with cancer, God forbid, but there's no guarantees. If I ever found that out, I don't know what I would do, but I think I would at least look into some avenues that the medical profession would say are not orthodox. That's very different than what we're talking about here. When it comes to Scripture, we have no choice but to be orthodox to have right doctrine, to be outside the bounds of orthodoxy is to be in a very dangerous place. Being a Christian, a believer, isn't just about getting a ticket to eternal life. It is about the transformation of the entire self through the power of God, through His Word and His Spirit. And this transformation is not only of the heart, but of the mind. We start thinking differently as believers, which leads to new behaviors. Behaviors are produced by belief. Belief begets behavior. And because we are never far from the gospel, Paul says at the end of that section, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. One thing I've really noticed the last couple years reading the writings of Paul is how no matter what he's talking about, you follow in the text and most of the time you can find a reference to the gospel. I mean, he's, he's veering off over here, but it doesn't take him long, and he'll come right back to the gospel. He does it all the time. It's what makes good preaching. Is that no matter what we're talking about, we're always bringing it back to the gospel. And Paul says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, sound doctrine is in accordance with the gospel. What's he saying? All good doctrine flows from the gospel. All good doctrine is rooted in the proper understanding of Scripture. The Bible is the standard for measuring truth. 
This is why we do what we do week after week, month after month. We look at the book. We look at the book as the Holy Spirit works among us. I did not get to be 5'11", and none of your business pounds through one meal. I've had meals that I felt like I put on 10 pounds. But I could not point back to one single meal. And how many meals do we remember in our lives? We eat thousands. You know, I, I think back to a handful of really good meals I've had, but for the most part, they're, they're, really, they're forgetful. They just are. And so it is with coming here and feasting on the Word of God. You'll probably never be able to look at one sermon and say, that was the one that changed my life. But the steady diet of the Word of God, feeding week after week at the table, will let you grow into the person that you are, and not only on Sunday mornings, but what you do outside of here, the time that you spend is what transforms you into the image of God. There'll be a few, just like meals, I can think back to a handful of sermons in my life that I just thought were transformational. I just, wow. But those are few. Most sermons, I, I, I can't remember. I've went back to sermon notes that I've preached in the past and had no recollection of that and went... <laughs> If I can't remember it, and I'm the one that did it, nobody else remembers that. It's gone. It's, it's somewhere in their mind, just like every other word they've ever heard is somewhere stuck in their mind. Uh, it's there, uh, but that's how we're transformed. The difference in that is, it's not my words. The preacher is irrelevant. The person standing in the pulpit is irrelevant. It's the Word of God that's going forth. That's why preaching... The effectiveness of preaching is not based upon a man's charisma or rhetorical ability. Um, it's, it's based upon the Bible and the Holy Spirit, the work of God in our lives. And that's what we do. That's why we do what we do week after week so that we can be transformed into His image. There will come a day when we stand before God. And we will not hear his divine approval based upon, upon what we did in this life. As I've heard others say, and I have echoed it, if I stand before Jesus and he says, enter in thou good and faithful servant, and if he happens to ask, and why do you think you're here? I am not going to say, well, because I, because anything that comes after that's wrong. If he asks why I'm here, I'm going to fall on my knees, cast my crown at his feet, and say, it's you, Jesus. It's what you did for me on the cross. It's all you. But I will stand before him, and you will stand before him. And when I stand before him, when I hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of the Lord. When I hear him say that, and I believe I'll hear him say that, not because of a life that I've lived, because of the life that he lived and the death that he died. I, I close with these words because I think it's so relevant and so good. I've, I've said this many times in the pulpit. Many years ago, decades ago, a missionary wrote a letter to a preacher. 
I don't know who the missionary was. I know who the preacher is. And the female missionary, and this is, these are the words that she wrote him. She said, Upon a life that I did not live, and upon a death that I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. I heard that years ago, and I've never forgotten. My eternity, my hope, is not based upon how I did this week, because there are some weeks that if, it's, if it really works that way, there are some weeks that I'm in trouble. Some weeks that for all of us, that we just don't have good days, good weeks. But thankfully, God does not operate like a turnstile door entering in and out of our hearts based upon our performance or our emotions or our attitudes. He justifies us. He declares us righteous by faith. I stand in Him. He fills us with His Holy Spirit. I am in Christ, buried with Christ in baptism. The Holy Spirit in me. He is in me. I abide in Him. But it's because of the work that He did. Upon a life that I did not live and upon a death that I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. Let's stand this morning. It's already recorded in the books in heaven this morning. You've already written it down, what's happened here this morning. And I walk away from this podium knowing, trusting that your Holy Spirit has illuminated all of our hearts, my heart, these precious people, their hearts, with your word. And that your word, as it has went forth, it will not return void. I pray, Lord, that you would prick our hearts, help us to be aware as we live an existence in a very secular world, the fog of the secular world that we're going to make our way through this week, that you would illuminate, be a light in a dark world. Lord, transform us, touch us. I pray this morning you grant us wisdom to know what we ought to do. Grant us wisdom. Such a need today, Lord, for wisdom. Give us wisdom according to the work of your Spirit, the gift of wisdom this morning. Grant us that today, that we may walk wisely, astutely in a very ignorant and foolish world. I pray, Lord, that you'd keep your hand upon us today, that you'd be with us. Bless everything that's said in our lives and done this week. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close this morning in song.